Uh, we've been in the book of Ephesians for about the past seven months now. Um, we started uh, late last summer and we've been working through it ever since. And, and I'm sad to say that we're actually almost done. Uh, we have this week and next week. Um, we might have one more week after that. So either two or three weeks left. And uh, I know for me personally, it's been uh, really, really encouraging to just really slowly, word by word, verse by verse, digest the scriptures, hear them preached in a really slow fashion, um, think about what the scriptures are saying. Uh, and I think for me too, it's been uh, a really good way that I actually remember <laughs> what is said in the book of Ephesians because we've been going through it so slowly. Um, and so I'm sad to see it end, but I hope you guys benefited from it as well. Um, we of course have really fun and exciting uh, sermon series coming up. Uh, we're, I think we're going to start the um, called Road to Redemption uh, leading up to Easter, looking at some of Jesus' sayings and some of the moments that lead to the cross. After that, I think we're going to dive into James for a little bit. And then starting next fall, we're going to do a really long series on Genesis. So all those things are really exciting. Um, but nonetheless, Ephesians has been great. Uh, so we'll be in um, chapter 6, verses 10 through 17 today, if you want to turn there. Um, and our section is kind of, like I just said, the, the beginning of the end. Paul has, up to this point, kind of painted a, a, a mountain range of things. Right? He's, he's, he's painted these, these high peaks of God's grace and God's blessing and this eternal inheritance we have in Christ and the fact that we are saved through Christ. And then we have these, um, these lush green valleys of, of kind of Christian living in between those. These lush green valleys of putting on the new self with, with love and kindness and forgiveness and these lush green valleys of submitting to one another out of uh, love for God. And um, so in general, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, he kind of, uh, does these mountain peaks, the first three chapters. He has these big truths about God, about how we are eternally blessed, about how God um, has saved us. And then in chapters four through six, he starts to work out the implications of those things. Right? So how do we live in light of those big truths? And today's text is kind of a, a summation of all of that. It's kind of um, Paul's final commands, if you will, final thoughts before he concludes the letter. And I find it very interesting that he decides to use his final thoughts, final commands to mention spiritual warfare. He uses this imagery of spiritual battle. And we've gotten glimpses of this throughout the letter so far. Um, he, he uses the phrase, the sons of disobedience, and he kind of pins them against um, children of God. He's uh, kind of pinned um, walking in darkness against walking in light. And so we kind of have gotten glimpses of this, but now he takes time to kind of expand on that fully. And I think it's interesting, again, that it's at the end because it's almost like Paul is reminding the Ephesians, hey, these high peaks of God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercies and these uh, wonderful lush green valleys of Christian living, they actually uh, are, are, are under attack. The enemy sees these things and wants to attack. So let's read our passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Um, I'll read this and at the end I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, if you would respond by saying, thanks be to God. Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. 
Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. So I think it's safe to assume, I'm going to put everyone in a box for a minute, um, that most people here fall into two categories. If you're here and you consider yourself a Christian, most people fall into two categories. A lot of us vastly underestimate uh, spiritual warfare. A lot of us vastly underestimate Satan. Right? This idea that there is uh, a cosmic battle between good and evil and, and that somehow humans partake in that is something that's kind of taboo. Right? I mean, we, we live in um, Boston, the, one of the intellectual hubs of the world. It's hard enough to convince people that there's a personal God. You add on to that, that there's also a devil or a Satan. There's a study done in 2009, so long ago, that I think probably the numbers have increased since then, um, that found that 59% of self-identifying American Christians agree or somewhat agree with the statement that Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. And so you have this idea that certainly outside of the church, Satan isn't a thing. But even inside the church, a lot of people think Satan is not a real evil being. And then there's the other side, right? Those of us that overestimate or overvalue spiritual warfare. We overestimate Satan. And so uh, we live with this kind of inflated idea of his powers. And maybe we wouldn't say this directly, but we kind of subconsciously act like he's just as powerful as God. And we start to view Satan as almost equal or his kind of uh, equal uh, coworker or peer of sorts. C.S. Lewis notes that there are two equal and opposite heirs into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both heirs. So in other words, according to Lewis, both sides are in danger. Both sides, those who overestimate and those who underestimate, are right where the devil wants them to be. And I think what Paul does in our text today is he, he kind of implicitly draws this line right down the middle. And he does a really good job at acknowledging this massive dark power, this massive evil, this evil being. And at the same time, on the other side, equips us to fight that being with spiritual armor in God. So in our time today, I want us to see quite simply that Paul is telling us we need spiritual armor to fight spiritual enemies. Real simple. You need spiritual armor to fight spiritual enemies. And two thoughts, two points to kind of guide our time as we think about that. Um, first, we're going to spend some time establishing the fact that you, Christian, have an enemy. That, that, that there are spiritual forces that oppose you, that oppose what you believe, that oppose how you are striving to live. There is spiritual opposition to the Christian life. So we're going to talk about that. And then secondly, in light of that, um, we're going to talk about this spiritual armor, this armor of God. Right? So yes, there is an enemy, but you have spiritual armor in Christ. 
So first you have a spiritual enemy, or maybe more broadly, you have a spiritual battle. Look at verse 12 with me. I'm going to read it again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I think it's interesting. If I were to ask, um, what are the marks of a genuine Christian? How do you know if someone's a real genuine Christian? Uh, We could come up with a lot of things, right? Maybe some easy ones off the top of their head. They profess faith in Christ. They, um, maybe they go to church, they read their Bibles, they pray, they go to a community group. Um, They attempt to live morally upright, decent lives that are in line with scripture. But what I think would take us a long time to get to, or maybe we wouldn't get to it at all, is the presence of spiritual warfare. Is the fact that one of the true marks of a Christian is that they have a real spiritual enemy who's seeking to attack them. I think rarely do we hear anyone say that that's one of the defining marks of the Christian, right? That there's spiritual warfare in life. But the two are very connected. Christianity, being a Christian, and, and, and spiritual warfare, you almost can't have one without the other. All right, look at that last phrase in verse 12. Paul says, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. That phrase, if you've been with us as we work through Ephesians, that ought to kind of ring a bell. He's used that phrase before. Paul's used that phrase twice, actually. He says in Ephesians 1 that we are blessed with Christ, with every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavenly places. And then again, Ephesians 2, he says, by grace we have been saved and raised up with Christ, seated us in the heavenly places. So in other words, this great spiritual conflict that you're in shouldn't cause you to doubt your faith. It actually is evidence that you are a genuine Christian. If you weren't raised up with Christ, if you didn't have a relationship with Christ, you wouldn't be privy to spiritual warfare in the same way as someone who wasn't a Christian. And so actually, when you, when you think about that, like there's, there is this kind of underlying level of comfort, right? That, that if you're here and you feel spiritually attacked, which we'll talk about what that actually looks like in a little bit. But if you're here and you feel spiritually attacked, that means that, that most likely you have a relationship with, a Christ, with Christ and, and the devil wants to try to break that apart. And so let yourself be, feel reassured that uh, you're under attack because God has raised you up with Christ and seated you in the heavenly places. And as much as we wish that was not the case, as much as we are tempted to think that um, the Christian life does not include such kind of violent imagery, we can't escape the fact that scripture is very clear about this. We just read it in verse 12. We can't get around the fact that, that scripture presents an enemy for us and that scripture presents a battle for us. And if you're here and, and you don't consider yourself a Christian, let me just kind of just consider this. Don't, don't, don't get weighed down on the fact, is Satan real? That's a whole different conversation for a different time that's kind of predicated on your belief in God in the first place. But, but consider this. We all, Christian or not, we all face evil. We all face trials. We all face obstacles and sufferings. We all have um, bad days. We all have bad seasons. And that's not to say that all of those things are spiritual warfare, but, but consider this. Consider God's beautiful answer to those things. Consider the appeal this kind of passage has to someone who's facing evil. So when everything is sort of pushing against you in life, consider what kind of 
support system, what kind of armor you have outside of Christ and outside of Christianity, and compare that to what kind of armor God is offering you in Christ in this passage. But back to the fact, Scripture presents an enemy. Um, Satan, I think I've said his name a couple times, but that's the enemy, if it wasn't clear. Satan, the devil. We don't know a ton about Satan's origin. Scripture talks about him a lot and his devices and the way he works a lot, but it doesn't say a lot about where he's from. He was most likely an angelic type of creature uh, that uh, Isaiah 14 points to the fact that at some point he rebelled against God. And at some point out of his pride, he kind of didn't want to worship God and he wanted to be worshiped. And so in an instant, he was cast out of heaven. An instant, he was cast out of God's presence. And, And Jesus, when he was talking about this, says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so Satan, he's kind of eternally set himself up against God against God's people, against God's plans and God's purposes. And he's not alone. Scripture also clearly notes that that there is the existence of of demons and other spiritual evils that are kind of under the command of Satan, right? So Satan's not omnipresent like God. He can't be in all places at all times like God, but he has um, a lot of spiritual beings that help him, that kind of go and do his bidding. And according to Paul, all of this, is what we're up against. So a natural question arises then, okay, Satan is real. Other demonic forces, demonic beings are real. What is the existence of Satan in those beings? What, what does spiritual warfare look like in our lives? How does Satan attack us? And I think scripture paints a few different colors when it comes to this. Our, our passage itself says that um, the devil schemes, right? Paul mentions the schemes of the devil, I think, I don't remember if it was earlier this year or last year, but we did a whole series called Schemes, where we looked at the schemes of the devil. And so we have this picture of the devil scheming and uh, kind of strategically thinking about how to bring about destruction. Lemuel Haynes, who's a pastor in the 1700s, 1800s, um, said that Satan is a very successful preacher. He mixes truth with air in order to make it go well. So we have this image of Satan actually preaching Satan preaching things that are attractive and enticing, but go against the gospel, go against the truth that we find in God's word. But maybe they um, sprinkle in a little bit of truth so that it looks attractive to us. Maybe most frequently scripture calls the devil a liar and a deceiver. Jesus calls Satan the father of all lies. Referring to this, John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, which we've brought up a number of times throughout this series. So just gonna also say, I recommend that you get that and read that. It's a good book. Um, he calls the devil the origin point of deception, whose end goal is to drive our souls and society into ruin. Paul says, this is what we are up against. And so it's out of this idea that the devil is a liar, that, that his goal is to drive our souls and society into ruin, that the, these things kind of provide the framework for understanding how Satan works. They kind of provide a framework for what he seeks to do. And so practically this manifests itself in many different ways in our lives, right? I think we each experience spiritual warfare differently. Satan comes at us differently. It differs from person to person, but it's all rooted in this fact that that he is a liar. It's all rooted in this fact that he wants to bring about destruction to our souls and to society. And practically, practically, this can look kind of simple, right? It can look like something as simple as every Wednesday, the workday is coming to a close. You got CG. 
and all of a sudden you get this really strong urge not to go to community group. Right? Something, something at work came up or the kids are going crazy or you're just really tired. Right? And so all of a sudden this little lie, this little thought creeps into your mind. Maybe I don't need community like this. Maybe I'd actually be better off having another day of the week to myself. And I think what's interesting um, is, is if you look at people that kind of um, have stepped away from Christian community, I would actually argue um, very broadly that, that Satan kind of prompts that first step, but after that, they just kind of flail on their own, right? So I, I think they, they take this step out of community and, and Satan's kind of pushed them out of community, but then all of a sudden they're left to their own devices. They don't have anyone to hold them accountable. They don't have people around them that love them and care for them because they've stepped out. So it can look like that. It can also be the devil working through small church conflicts, right? All of a sudden, a small thought pops into your head over a minor matter. Maybe I can't be in fellowship with these people. It can look like anxiety and depression. The thought creeps in, is God really in control? Does God really care? Does he really love? Look at what I'm going through. And I should add, it, it can look like the things you see in the movies too, right? I haven't seen it myself, but I have friends that have, have seen people that have been possessed by demons and have these demonic voices and they can attest that, that this is a thing that actually happens. Um, for me personally, I'll share two stories to kind of throw some skin in the game. One's a little more, um, I don't want to say extreme, but like more obviously like demonic and then one's a little more subtle. Um, so my uh, senior year of college, I moved in with, with two of my best friends, two roommates, and not too long after moving in, I started having this reoccurring um, dream. Not just like a scary dream, but, but one where I felt just like this sense of evil and I felt myself fighting against it, but I wasn't in control and I just felt this evil kind of being kind of force in the dream. And eventually I, I sat down with uh, my roommate, my friend, and just in conversation, I found out he's been having that same dream for like three years. And it wasn't until I moved in with him that I started having that dream. And then fast forward four years later, I get married and Ashlyn, a few weeks in, starts talking about these dreams she's having. And it's the same dream. It's the same thing. And so we ended up just starting to pray about it every single night before bed. And it hasn't happened in like three years, but it can look like that. But then a little more subtle for me personally, uh, anytime I'm doing something like preparing for a sermon or something at work, or something where I'm going to be either explicitly or implicitly kind of sharing the gospel or talking about God's goodness or something like that, I get abnormally like discouraged, almost to the point it just is debilitating, to the point where I have to stop working for like four or five hours because I am just like flattened. And I think some of you here have felt things like that too, right? That's spiritual attack. That's spiritual warfare. So spiritual warfare can be this broad spectrum, right? It doesn't just look like demon possession and, and dark voices. It can look like that, but it's not just that. And it also doesn't just look like spiraling thoughts. It can look like that, but it's not just that. And so with this broad spectrum, I have no doubt that the things that are happening in Ukraine right now uh, include spiritual warfare. I have no doubt that there are these evil forces behind the things that are happening, these evil beings that are involved. At the same time, I think of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine who are facing that. 
right? There might not be a more important passage for them to hear than this. And if I'm honest, like as I was uh, reading this passage all week and preparing this message, I, I just, I couldn't help but to think about Ukraine the entire time. This, this image of, of warfare and of battle, it, it almost made me uncomfortable, to be honest. But then I realized Paul intentionally chose warfare and battle imagery to reflect this spiritual cosmic conflict because it truly represents how ugly it is. But the good news is, there is good news. The good news is, notice Paul doesn't tell us to win. He doesn't say go fight for eternal victory. He doesn't say even go fight for victory because Paul knows Jesus has already done that. And so we're actually in this weird state of already obtaining victory and yet still having a battle. Some of you have probably heard of this already not yet concept that's in scripture. We are already victorious in Christ, but not yet have we fully experienced that with like the total elimination of spiritual warfare. And so we're in this weird state of in between. Um, again, John Mark Comer in his book kind of compared this to D-Day in World War II. After D-Day was successful, everyone kind of knew the war was over. It was over. There was no way. But it still took time until the, the war ended. I think some historian can correct me, but I feel like there's probably like a year between D-Day and the end of the war. There were still battles to be fought, but everyone knew it was over. So in light of that, in light of all this, in light of still having a battle, in light of having an enemy, Paul wants to equip us. Look in verse 13, he says, therefore. So because of the fact that you have a spiritual enemy, because of the fact that you are in a cosmic fight against evil, make sure you have the right attire. Make sure you're prepared. Put on the armor of God. Which leads us to our second point. You have spiritual armor in Christ. So I think all of us kind of know or understand the idea of making sure you have the right equipment or right clothing for whatever you're doing. If you're a long distance runner and you're not running in running shoes, you're going to hurt your feet, right? You're not going to run as fast as you could or you're going to be really sore the next day or your feet are just going to have blisters on them. Even if you have running shoes, your feet might have blisters on them. But, you know, or if you're uh, going to the beach in July to surf and you're wearing snowboarding gear, like that doesn't add up, right? I remember a few years ago, I was in a decent habit of playing basketball somewhat frequently with some people from the church. Um, and if you know me, like I really like playing basketball, but I just, I really stink at it. Um, but anyways, I would play in these running shoes and, and in basketball, you have to like cut and make like sudden changes of direction. And my running shoes were just terrible for that. And so after every time I played, I would have these, really red sores on the outside of my foot where I was trying to cut, sometimes open sores. And so eventually after this kept happening, I bought what any normal person does that plays basketball, I bought basketball shoes. And uh, it, was, it was just funny how instantly I felt better, right? The, the sores, they just didn't come up anymore. I was able to cut a lot easier. I played a little bit better too. My shot percentage went from 5% to 6%. Because I had the right equipment, right? Because I had the right attire, and so, quite obviously, Paul, in a similar way, he wants us to have the right equipment for this spiritual battle. So the rest of our time, we're just going to kind of run through the armor of God quickly, breaking down each of these pieces of armor. First, Paul talks about putting on the belt of truth. To engage in spiritual battle, you need to be armed with truth. And I think Paul uses this imagery of a belt because everything else is sort of connected to it. 
And so he's pulling both from, uh, when he uses these pieces of armor, he's pulling both from the Old Testament, which talks a lot about the armor of God. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but he's also pulling from just the simple idea of Roman armor of the time. And so Roman armor at the time, the belt, the breastplate actually would have been likely tucked into the belt. So it kind of held it in place. The, the sword and the holster would have been on the belt, right? And so uh, in some senses, the belt, even though belt seems somewhat insignificant, it was kind of foundational to the whole thing. And so we engage in spiritual warfare with truth, with God's truth. And side note, each piece of, the, each piece of this armor, it actually gives us a little bit of um, like almost like an inverse insight into how the devil works, right? We need the truth in spiritual warfare because the devil's gonna come at us with lies. So ask the question, practically, how do we put on this belt of truth? Priscilla Shire has some um, really good insights into this. She wrote a Bible study called The Armor of God. Um, it's a study specifically for women. It was written for women, but like I was reading it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. So highly recommend that if, if you are interested in, in, in this kind of passage and learning more about it to look that, look that up. But she describes this putting on the belt of truth like this. You filter every circumstance personally and culturally through the prism of his word instead of merely leaning on your feelings. So that means when you feel a certain way, when you're experiencing a certain emotion, when you react a certain way against a, uh, against a situation or a circumstance, you take that and you line it up against what God says in the scriptures. And you line it up against the Holy Spirit and the convictions he's put on you. Paul goes on to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. Right now, the idea of putting on righteousness, I, I kind of want to look at it in two ways. Right, so, so far, Ephesians 4, 5 and, and part of 6, um, Paul has talked a lot about living a righteous life. Right, chapter four, we have this idea of taking off the old self and putting on the new righteous self, right? Love, kindness, forgiveness. We also have these ideas of walking in love and walking in wisdom and walking in light, walking in righteousness. So part, part of what Paul's saying here is that spiritual warfare in part is living a righteous, upright life, upright life in light of the scriptures. Why? Because the enemy is gonna come at you with unrighteousness. He will tempt you to live an unrighteous life. And so it's no coincidence that Paul chooses the breastplate as the piece of armor that guards righteousness. It guards the heart. So that's the first part of righteousness is the idea that spiritual warfare, when it comes to righteousness, is living morally upright, righteous lives. And the second part um, is, is the righteousness of Christ that is given to us when we trust in him. And in fact, all these pieces of armor all of them are entirely dependent upon you trusting in Christ. You don't get truth without Christ. You don't get righteousness without Christ. You don't get the gospel without Christ. You don't get faith without Christ. You don't get salvation without Christ. And so to answer the question broadly for each of these pieces of armor, how do you put on this armor? The answer is to trust in Christ. So this righteousness of Christ, what does this actually look like in spiritual warfare? When that thought creeps in that, that, you aren't enough or you aren't worthy or you aren't loved. You remember that in Christ and only in Christ, you have the righteousness of God. You are loved by God. You are deemed worthy by God. Martin Luther, in one of his writings, kind of imagining this conversation with the devil, he uh, really does a good job of showing what spiritual warfare can actually look like. He says, you can tell me that I am a poor sinner, but I, on the other hand, can tell you that Christ died for sinners. And so it's a simple line, but I think it's a really great picture of what spiritual warfare can look like. 
right? You fight back against what the devil wants to say. You fight back against the things that he attacks you with. And in this scenario, Martin Luther literally is imagining this conversation where he talks back and he refutes it. Paul goes on in verse 15 to talk about putting on as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this one was kind of interesting. Um, my CG this week, we actually had a conversation about like, well, what does this even mean? And I felt silly because I was preaching on the passage and I was like, oh, I don't know. But I think that the readiness given by the gospel it simply means that the gospel makes us ready because we're in relationship with God. Out of a relationship with God, we are ready for what comes our way, whether it's a threat or whether it's an opportunity, whether it's an attack or whether it's a blessing. I think Paul says this slightly different um, when he's talking to Timothy. He says, be ready in season and out of season. You can be ready in season and out of season because you're in a relationship with God. Verse 16, Paul talks about the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Um, Faith is a major part of our defense, right? And this Roman shield that Paul's talking about, don't picture this kind of handheld shield, like Captain America size type shield. It was actually this really big, probably four, four feet tall and two feet wide, almost like a door. And so like if I'm, I'm on stage and I'm holding that shield, it probably comes from my feet almost all the way up to my chest, right? And so you can imagine that as I'm holding it, like it's pretty easy for me to either raise it up and, and block my entire body or bend down and block my entire body from any kind of attack. And we use this shield, Paul says, to extinguish, extinguish the flaming darts, the flaming arrows of Satan. So not only is Satan shooting arrows at you, these arrows are on fire. Uh, and what's interesting actually is these shields, a lot of historians think that they were likely soaked in water for a certain amount of time before they went on the battlefield. And so that these shields, literally the wood were, was drenched so that when an arrow hit the shield um, that was on fire, it would be me- immediately be extinguished. And so again, taking this from pure imagery to practice, how do we take up the shield of faith? How do we use this in spiritual warfare? Again, Priscilla Shire um, says, faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. So when Satan, he takes out his bow and kind of lines up his shot and he shoots his arrow at you. In this flaming arrow, you're tempted to sin or towards this desire or that desire. You can in faith realize that God is telling the truth when he says that he is enough for you and that you don't need that that God is telling the truth when the scripture says God is faithful and he will provide a way out from sin and temptation. Paul goes on to talk about the helmet of salvation in verse 17, the helmet of salvation. Um, Again, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Like there's actually comfort in the fact that spiritual warfare is coming upon us because it means we are saved because it means we have a relationship with Christ. Most of the time, I'm not going to prescribe that for everyone. But the helmet of salvation provides us assurance with the fact that we are in this great battle, this great fight, but we are not fighting for salvation. We're fighting from salvation. And so in, eternal, in, an, in an eternal sense, we are secure because God has already accomplished it. I think this is, this is actually probably one of my favorite parts of the passage. Paul here is he's, he's pulling from Old Testament imagery. He's pulling from Isaiah 59. And Isaiah 59 is it's really beautiful. It paints this picture 
of just kind of this landscape. And, and God in Isaiah 59, he's, he's looking around. He's just looking and he notices a few things. The scripture notes that righteousness is far off. There are not people living righteous lives. There, the scripture notes that, that truth is lacking. God looks out and see that, sees that truth is lacking among the people. He sees that evil has run rampant and that, that sin is taking over. And it goes on to say that God wondered that there was no one to intercede. So in other words, God wondered who will fight this evil. God wondered who's going to save these people. And then Isaiah 59 goes on to say that God put on righteousness as a breastplate. That God put on a helmet of salvation on his head. And so you see Isaiah 59 anticipates God coming in the form of this divine warrior. And it's beautiful, right? That Christ was the one who put on the armor. Right, so Isaiah anticipates this and in Paul in our passage, he now sees it fully realized, fully fulfilled in Christ. One commentator powerfully noted that um, he compared what Isaiah was saying to what Paul was saying in Ephesians. And he said that Paul changes the image. In Isaiah, God's helmet of salvation is what he does. In Ephesians, it's what he gives. Look very closely at the phrase Paul uses when talking about the helmet of salvation. What does he say? says, take, take the helmet of salvation. It's being given, it's being offered. With the helmet of salvation, the assurance of salvation, we fight this battle already having a secure victory in Christ. The last thing Paul mentions, mentions in our passage, um, verse 17, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now, find, I find it interesting that this is the only thing Paul mentions that is also uh, not only defensive, but offensive as well, right? So we use the word of God as a defense against the attacks of Satan. I think we see this clearly um, in Matthew 4, when Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness and he's fighting temptations, he's spiritually fighting the devil, right? And, and the devil comes at him and, and, and um, tempts him in a certain way. And what does Jesus do in response? He quotes scripture. He refutes the lies that the devil is trying to get Jesus to believe with the truth that's found in scripture. So for us, for you, when you feel like God has left you, when you feel alone, when you feel like you have no direction, you can confidently appeal to the scriptures. Say, God leads me beside still waters. God restores my soul. God leads me in paths of righteousness. And then the devil will come back and say, yeah, but look at everything going on around you. How could you say that? And then you can confidently say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for God is with me. That's what it looks like to use the word of God against the spiritual attacks of the enemy. And so you'll notice something about um, kind of how you use this armor it's, it's, it's first and foremost, ultimately dependent upon you trusting in Christ. But secondly, it's also dependent on you knowing this to some extent, right? It doesn't mean you have to go and memorize the whole thing. It doesn't mean you have to understand the depths of the, the doctrines and the truths in there. But it does mean maybe you crack open Psalm 23 
Verse 1, and you just memorize that. And when temptation comes your way, you say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So as we close, um, I just want to finish with just two thoughts. Um, the first is just to reiterate what Paul's saying in this passage, to encourage you to stand firm, to stand firm in the Lord. In the Lord. As I was reading this passage, I felt kind of convicted because um, I realized in my life, when I feel under spiritual attack, I too often take this, uh, take a this too shall pass kind of stance, right? So I mentioned I feel abnormally discouraged at certain times. What I typically do is I just try to wait it out. Sometimes it's four hours, sometimes it's four days. But Paul's saying, don't do that. Paul's saying, fight against that. Paul's saying, put on the armor of God. And secondly, uh, again, kind of appealing to what it looks like to engage in this spiritual warfare. Some of us might be still kind of like, well, what exactly does it, what exactly does it mean to put on this armor? What exactly does it mean to put on this helmet of salvation, this belt of truth? Um, and I want to encourage you with just one quick step. John Mark Comer, again, noted quite simply that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. So start there. Start with just simply opening the scriptures and seeing what they have to say. Start with just praying, right? Start with being in community. Maybe you have to take a step and join community in the first place. Maybe you've been away from community for some time and you have to lean back in. Or maybe you have to ask the question, what does it look like for you to dive deeper into community? Right? Engaging in those things, those spiritual disciplines, that is spiritual warfare. That's using truth and faith and righteousness and the gospel to fight back, to stand firm. So we're going to transition to a time of communion. Um, and in light of what we just said, I want to encourage you to uh, view this as part of your spiritual fight. As you take the bread, remember what Christ has done for you by giving up his body. As you take the blood, remember how Christ has spilled his blood for you. Say those things, think those things. And if you aren't a Christian, this is the one part of service we ask you not to partake in. Uh, we think scripture is clear that this is something that is only for those who have accepted Christ. And um, I'm sure as most of you know, uh, we ask that anytime over this next song, you just head out that door um, and go around the hallway and then take communion in the hall. Uh, we can't have any food or drinks in here. So uh, that's just a way to respect that um, and then come back and continue to worship. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you. We are thankful that ultimately you have won the battle eternally in which we now find ourselves in. We are thankful that we have the helmet of salvation secure. We are thankful that we have the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the gospel and faith in your scriptures, God. Lord, I ask that you help us to use these things as we fight the enemy. I ask that you help us to trust in you more, Jesus, as we seek to do that. Uh, you name we pray and ask these things. Amen.